Hello and welcome to the Sorbonne Mesa podcast with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Today is Monday the 16th of November. Today, my guest, Jorge Tamamas, will be talking about populism in both the US and Spain. This comes at a time after Donald Trump has lost the US elections and the previous populist or left-wing populist um, political party, Podemos, are actually in government. We also touch upon right-wing populism and republicanism and the future for the populist left in both Spain and the US. I hope you enjoy the interview. Today with me on Sobremesa, I have Jorge Tamamas, who is a writer and he is also an editor and a journalist at Politica Exterior. Uh, he has recently written uh, the book For the People, Left Populism in Spain and the USA. Welcome to Sobremesa, Jorge. Hi, thanks for having me here. It's okay, brilliant. Thanks for joining me. So I've been trying to get you on the show for a while because uh, populism is... You know, it's one of the latest buzzwords in, or has been for probably the last, I suppose, 10, five years, probably 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of academic, political academic research that goes into it, but also quite a, you know, general misunderstanding, I think, from, you know, from people that read The Guardian all the way up to, or El Pais, all the way up to people that read, you know, ABC and uh, the Daily Mail and things like that. Um, so, like, the general understanding of populism is someone that says it's, uh, you know, us against them. And it's like trying to mobilize the masses. Um, I don't, it throws up sort of images of Pablo Iglesias stood on a stage with his fist in the air or, or Donald Trump on the, you know, on the right wing side, you know, trying to rile up his supporters with racist rhetoric and things like this. And a lot of sort of center liberals or centrists and, and even some on the left and some on the right have been sort of quite negative towards populism. Um, so I just wondered if you could explain to us like your understanding of populism and, and how you use it to frame the sort of argument in your book or the basis of your book. Right, so, okay, well, thanks Alan for the question. I mean, I'll, I'll try and keep it uh, relatively simple. Uh, because debates on, on populism often get very um, academic and jargony. Uh -huh. But basically, the, the reason for one of the reasons for writing a book was that um, starting at least in Spain in 2014, you start seeing these new political movements um, that get labeled populist, right? Um, and populism is one of those words that if you use carefully, I think has some meaning, but usually it's just used in an awful way. So much that if you're actually like a populist running for office, you should probably not call yourself a populist. You know? <laughs> right. do, do populism, but not, not call yourself one. Um, really, there's never been a lot of understanding or like agreement on what it means. For example, academic sector, they first held a big conference in the 60s in the London School of Economics to debate what was populism, right? And like um, a lot of academics, um, a lot of them very prestigious at the time in the social sciences gathered for three or four days to like talk about it and they couldn't reach a conclusion of what is populism, right? And you see this as a recurring problem uh, in, the, in the field of populism studies as it's called, which has really ballooned in the last five to six years, right? Mm. There's been a sort of um, academic fad to talk about populism and so on. Um, but again, it, it's not very clear. Sometimes they refer to populism as an ideology that pits the people, uh, the pure people versus corrupt elite. Mm -hmm. um, 
basically my problem with that is like if you look at populist politicians like none of them really believe they actually embody the people mm. um you know that's something they use rhetorically but it's not something they believe it had to be pretty deluded to to think they actually represent the entirety of the the, the people right and mm. their countries and um the same is true of like traditional politicians also sometimes claim to embody the will of the majority even when they don't right it's mm. um like a metonym right you take a part and you make it seem like the whole and that's part and parcel of democratic politics you make it seem like your electorate is uh, you know like the, the what your electorate wants is what the larger society wants so not not very satisfactory in that regard and then you know journalists i mean you, you mentioned the guardian the guardian has like a semi semi-academic semi-journalistic project where they do all these graphs and charts and they explain to you how populist this some um, this person or that other guy and they have like so you do like a test and then they rate it and they quantify <laughs> it. You're like plus three on the populism scale. So like, for example, um, Angela, Angela Merkel is the least populist politician they have there, right? Um, mm. Tony Blair, who was like a guest in one of the, the events they made in this project, is, is also one of the least populist. But, um, but for example, like Hugo Chavez is a big populist, right? Mm. Um, and then like there's some issues with the scoring. For example, like Evo Morales, the Bolivian president, has scored... Um, to the right of Barack Obama, um, wow. ideologically. So, so it, it just gets very confused and it's like hard to quantify it in that way. So that's not satisfactory either. Mm. And then finally, when you, in popular discourse or even like journalists, a lot of the time when they talk about populism, they just mean demagoguery, right? Like mm. you, you say, you promise one thing and you do another. And like, fine, like we don't, like none of us like that. But the thing is like, you know, populists do that, but also like traditional parties are also demagogic like that. Mm. I mean, that's just, um, again, that's just a fact of life in democratic politics. So like singling out populists for doing this is, um, methodologically doesn't make any sense. Mm. So yeah, so then like, you know, if everyone is using it wrong, what do I even mean by that, by populism? I, I think it's useful and I understand it to mean basically, um, as you said, a sort of a discourse that establishes a distinction between an us and a them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this distinction is politicized in a way that is, well, it can be more or less useful. So mm. like, I don't think polarization is a bad thing per se, you polarize with things like economic inequality, right? And if the us, so to say, is the 99% and the them is the 1% of the, the wealthiest people mm -hmm. um, in the world or in a given society, right? Mm. It's like, the traditional slogan of the Occupy Wall Street. Movement. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah. simplistic because in the end, when you look down at these societies, it's not a 1% versus 99, but maybe it's like a 10% of people were benefit from a given economic setup and 90% of people were not. So you still have an overwhelming majority. It's mm -hmm. a redistributive issue. It's not like you're tearing people apart on account of their identity or things they don't have a control about in their life, but uh, actually about you know, material problem in their lives. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you, you establish this division and then once you've established it, you do present the us, um, that is the majority as the people, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the people is not something that like exists out there. You can't go in any country and find the people. It's not, um, you know, it's something you have to construct rhetorically. What do you mean by the people? And so there are many ways to do it. The radical right, what they do is they construct the people as sort of like these, these hardworking patriots and they're threatened from above by the, these cosmopolitan elites and also by below by immigrants and, you mm -hmm. know, uh, feminist cultural diversity whatnot mm -hmm. that's a kind of division that like doesn't lend itself like a, you know somewhere down the road it will lead to a an illiberal conception of politics and uh, understanding by liberal like the ideas of like political pluralism that we understand are important so forth. yeah um 
if you do this division a different way, if you say, no, it's, uh, you know, again, that this, uh, this idea um, that is not like fully accurate, but it's also, but it's very intuitive and useful, the 99 versus 1%. Mm -hmm. um, then you have a division that I think is useful to politicize. All mm -hmm. the more so because it, at the time that these populist so-called you know, parties appear, um, those divisions are not being polarized, right? You had the, the 2008 crisis mm -hmm. uh, followed by austerity policies in Europe and the traditional parties didn't do much about it. I mean, the traditional center-left parties um, in many ways, um, they, they supported austerity politics mm -hmm. and, and cutting social spending in the middle of a crisis. Um, and the center left came from a time of um, this idea of the third way, right? That basically there's a consensus more or less with the center right on how to manage the economy. Mm -hmm. And what you want to do is, um, you know, have a progressive um, agenda on civil rights, which is very good, but really that's about it, right? Mm -hmm. You're not interested in um, developing a different um, economic model. So mm -hmm. I think that it was necessary. And I think it's, uh, you know, in many ways, a healthy democratic reaction that um, new parties or, or new factions within parties rise to to the occasion mm. yeah i mean that's really interesting um and it sort of chime i can see the uh you know people that want systematic change would agree i think would agree with you that yeah change is possible now that we have you know i suppose what is embodied in and populism um but then you get like i don't know we have this concept in the uk of centrist dad which is probably embodied by Joe Biden, you know, the sort of, this is how we do sensible politics and sensible rhetoric. And, you know, the markets will provide for all and, and this sort of, you know, the, the third way, the third way, um, third way populism, well, sorry, third way politics. The really the only difference between, I mean, in Spain, the Pessoa and the PP, the only really difference was the color of their ties and, um you know some social policies were a bit more friendly towards other certain groups maybe um you know that politics went on for a long time didn't it and then yeah 2008 happened uh and this is where i think your book really takes the economy into consideration but before we talk a bit more about the economy i just wondered how how did the book come about um and and why the us and spain so you know what was your journey on writing the book well, um, yeah, the book basically came out, it was my, my master's thesis. And, um, you know, I was, first of all, interested in this topic of, of populism and populism from the left, more specifically. Uh -huh. um, because another thing is like, usually populism is just used to refer to the radical right populism. Um, the, the left variant is rarely taken into consideration. So um, at the time I was, I was studying in the United States in Boston. Uh -huh. um, and before I was, I was interested when Podemos appeared, I was drawn to Podemos and I um, collaborated with them basically on uh, like on a different stuff than what the book is about on, on foreign policy. Right. So mm -hmm. um, especially like us Spain relations. Mm -hmm. So um, I was in the United States and this had happened. And then like the Bernie Sanders campaign, similarly to Podemos, you know, like this movement that seems to be going nowhere because it's, uh, you know, too radical or whatever and, and uh, defies expectations, thus surprisingly well. Mm -hmm. um, and again, also, you know, like gets dealt with by the press and academics in the same dismissive way of like, oh, you know, this is either the centrist dad, you know, like you really don't know what people want. These are not serious policies or this sort of um, horseshoe theory, right? Like, you know, we had an extreme oh, yeah. right and now we have an extreme left and they're mm -hmm. exactly the same thing. Uh, it's just like, it seems like an intellectually dishonest way of, of approaching the subject. 
Mm. So I was kind of frustrated with that. And then I was also, but it's also very inspired by these two movements that I was, you know, sympathetic towards and that were appearing in very different societies at the same point in time, right? Mm -hmm. That was kind of like the, the academic puzzle beyond my own personal interests. Is okay, you have countries with very different backgrounds, really. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to do a comparative study of Spain, academically, you'd look for like a, a, you know, another European um, Eurozone member, a mm-hmm. parliamentary democracy, not mm-hmm. like, you know, not a huge, um, more, you know, like older democracy on the other side of the Atlantic with uh, its own central bank. With mm-hmm. So, you know, it seemed to me like the, the both of these, um, the fact that he had similar movements appear in very different countries at the same time mm-hmm. suggests that there's like an underlying current uh, fueling the rise, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, that current had to do with the economy, really. It was not about like, you know, um, identity issues or like um, voters being resentful or like this idea that um, politicians, populist politicians are skillful demagogues that, uh, you know, they, they rally the people with good rhetoric and the people mm. are just gullible. No, no, I think like you can actually look at the political economy and look at it not just after the crisis, but in the last few decades, mm-hmm. pretty much since the 80s and what is called, you know, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution mm-hmm. and see that there were um, cleavages, uh, as they are called in the political science literature, that were, you know, deepening between between different groups in society mm-hmm. and that they had to do with really with um, economic redistribution and economic anxiety. And so these, these are like legitimate grievances. It's not about, um, you know, they can't just be dismissed as uh, people being resentful or politicians being demagogues. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, it was it was a study of something that I that I liked, but it was also about like the place where I was living. And while I was living in the U.S., I also canvassed and um, phone banked briefly for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was before I, I got to writing a thesis, so you know, I, it also came from personal experience where I had been involved with these movements and um, mm-hmm. I was interested in them from a from a personal perspective. How, like, if you compare the development of Podemos and, and Bernie Sanders, um, what, what are the differences between the countries and uh, have they developed in different ways? Yeah, I mean, like, even though there's a, like, you identify, like, a common impulse for, like, more redistributive economic policies, you know, people who are upset with the way the traditional centre-left um, has been governing for, for many years, mm-hmm. they're, of course, very different different part. I mean, like starting with the fact that the United States and Spain have very different party systems. So mm-hmm. uh, it, it, Podemos formed its own party. And a lot of the time, its main competitor was the central left party, the dominant central left party, the SOE, the mm-hmm. socialist party. Um, and in the United States, it's a bi-party system and it's harder to set up a third con- uh, party candidacy. So Bernie Sanders started to pressure the Democratic Party from inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, more similar, I guess, to, to the case of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, mm-hmm. Although, of course, um, like British Labour and the Democrats are very different parties. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in terms of the way you operate within the party. Yeah. So that's one big difference, of course. The other difference is, um, I guess, the, the profile of the leadership. Um, Bernie Sanders is a bit of a sort of a Jeremy Corbyn-esque figure in that he's a, like a, an old lefty who was around for a long time and always opposed mm-hmm. this like, um, you know, pivot to the center that the, the Democrats or Labour in the UK took in the 1980s and 90s, mm-hmm. um, who sort of remained true, I guess, to, to the uh, right to less true calling or so forth, right? That's the, the um, that, that's a character as it is yeah. constructed. And Podemos was basically like younger people who came from the traditional communist party in Spain, Izquierda Unida. Well, it's mm-hmm. a coalition of left parties, but it's dominated by the communist party. 
and who were frustrated with the way that uh, Izquierda Unida approached um, <clears throat> elections, you know, by, by using a rhetoric that was very much linked to the old communist tradition of sort of like, you speak about the working class, you speak about all these, um, you know, um, all these diagnostics that are like, they're, they're not like um, factually wrong or anything, but they just like, they don't resonate with voters because mm. uh, you, you come from uh, a juncture of decades of defeat uh, of the left. So they don't really resonate. Um, and then there's a, the difference finally in the way they went about their business electorally. Uh, if you were being schematic here, but you could say that these new parties in order to be successful, you need to combine a, a different rhetoric from the one the left traditionally used. That's mm -hmm. why the populist strategy is useful. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was mentioning, like in Spain, that the traditional left communist discourse just didn't seem to mobilize voters, especially mm -hmm. the younger ones and so forth, right? We're talking about a party that got roughly, I think it was 8% of the vote at the height of the crisis when there were a lot of protest movements. So it was not picking up on that. Uh -huh. One thing you need is a different rhetoric. Um, and that's different in every country because Bernie Sanders actually had a very much a, a socialist rhetoric, but it was very mm. blunt in its, um, in its call for economic redistribution, right? Economic justice, um, a, a bit more, this, not dismissive, but didn't emphasize so much cultural or, or identity questions as the as traditionally progressives do in the United States and just mm -hmm. focus on economic redistribution. Mm -hmm. um, so they both innovated in the discourse, but Podemos placed a lot more emphasis on this discursive approach, right? Mm -hmm. They were going to have like a really good discourse. They were really good at campaign strategies and communication. And so their idea was we have two years, 2014 to 2016, roughly, mm -hmm. to become the main, the leading party in the Spanish political party system. Mm -hmm. Or if not the leading party, at least overtake the center left, then we became the, the main party of the left, right? Mm -hmm. They have to follow us instead of us having to just prop them up. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very ambitious strategy that hinged on their discourse, the way they would connect with voters mm -hmm. by speaking, for example, instead of traditional categories of like, oh, you're working class, which didn't resonate with people, say like, this is about the people versus uh, la casta, so like the elites, right? Mm -hmm. the, uh, this mobilized people a lot because Spain came from a period of, um, you know, extreme inequality with the crisis. Uh, mm -hmm. It was handled by by cutting on on welfare um, by both the center left and the center right. There were corruption scandals, so there was a, a popular sense of um, you know being fed up with politics as usual, even mm -hmm. by a lot of people who are conservative, right? Who are mm -hmm. open to a different discourse. Maybe to, to a, a left discourse, if it was not presented in the traditional package of look, this is a very lefty discourse. Right? Yeah. Um, now, what they didn't do so well is organize for the mid and long term. They developed a party strategy that was like, it was very vertical. It was about, um, you know, like having a tight chain of command and winning elections within two years. Mm -hmm. So the discourse was there, but the organization, the organization of the party lent itself to a very short-term thinking. And once they didn't manage to, they acquired 20% of the vote in two years, which is an amazing um, and unprecedented result for a, uh, a left progressive party in Spain, or even for any kind of new party in Spain. Yeah. Um, but because they didn't overtake PSOE, they didn't really know what to do next. And then you find yourself in a juncture where if you only prioritize having a good discourse and not organizing, uh, you know, you start becoming a parody of yourself because every six months you're talking about a new thing but really when it comes to electoral competition you're competing against parties that have like people and infrastructure in every little corner of the country mm, yeah. and you don't you're linked to basically you know a few urban enclaves your voters are mostly urban 
um, mm -hmm. you know, middle class, like high degree of um, studies. Uh, I mean, like people like me, but you just don't want to get to people like me. You want to like broaden to to mm. other kinds of voters. Um, so so that was the, the problem. And, and it, with Bernie Sanders, it was a bit of the opposite thing. They did an amazing organizational um, work between his first campaign run and the second one. Mm -hmm. uh, at the beginning of this year, their organizational infrastructure was impressive. It was um, an amazing feat. Um, and they had, you know, volunteers and they had, um, they did an amazing outreach, phone banking, um, canvassing efforts, uh, really inspiring in this respect. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'd have to say like in, in I think in both his uh, 2016 and 2020 runs, Part of the discourse was missing from Sanders himself in that I think he should have challenged his uh, Democratic rivals further than he did. Mm. So he was notoriously um, gentle with, with Hillary Clinton, even though that didn't get him any sort of um, kudos from the mainstream Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I think in the run up to the to the um, to Super Tuesday and especially to the um, February primaries in South Carolina, he should have drawn, um, in my opinion, more contrast with with Joe Biden. Right. Mm. whom he presented as a guy who was, you know, well-meaning, but uh, who, who his policies could be improved, but who could certainly win the elections against Donald Trump. And I mean, mm. he, he did, but thanks to, thanks to, I guess, uh, to the coronavirus, right? Otherwise, yeah. the consensus is it would have been a, a very uphill battle. Mm. Um, and I think he should have drawn, done a better job of, of drawing contrast in this respect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, good innovative discourse strong organization. These are two things that are hard to balance. And I'd say if you had to draw the differences, um, the main one would be like Podemos really developed discourse to the extent of organization. Mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders, it was a bit of the opposite, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, that's a really good comparison. I've spoken with, uh, with uh, you know, Spanish uh, economic students and, you know, people that are sort of in the center and they say, yeah, I agree with everything Pablo Iglesias says and so do my parents. Um, but I won't vote for them. <laughs> so that, I don't know. It's that sort of weird sort of um, thing. And yeah, I mean, uh, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That, you know, every, every little town in Spain normally has a Pessoa, um, Puebla, uh, is it Casa de Pueblo? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Plemos have tried to sort of copy that with La Morada, but um, yeah, they're, they're, the membership base is sort of, I don't know, I think they're trying to shore it up a bit now, but um but that's yeah that's interesting the the different organizational uh, aspects uh so obviously bernie never got the candidacy and but podemos did i thought podemos have sort of bucked a trend maybe because of the electoral system in spain like pr um but you know they've gone into a coalition with the PSOE, um and it's quite like the, i suppose the interesting thing is you know when we were talking about how podemos came about they sort of had this good good discourse around the political cast and the political the political the political like class in that point also included Angela Merkel and the EU and they they weren't anti-EU on in the left sense but they were sort of very critical of it and now they're sort of um you know they're in the government having to work with the EU so how how does Podemos, or how has Podemos, um, like what's their what's their trajectory from the beginning to now on economic distribution and working with the EU? Because I mean, the EU is very important for Spain 
as 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 because it controls the euro basically i mean there's obviously things spain can do to manage its own budget and things but uh the the euro you know uh, the european central bank have a lot of power over the euro um and you know recently there's just been this like trillion dollar bailout package and i suppose it's like the european version of the new deal but following the second world war um so, you know, how do you see Podemos from their roots coming as like a sort of Eurosceptic party and, you know, being of the political caste to being part of a centre-left coalition uh, during the time of a crisis? You know, how, how have Podemos managed this and, you know, where can you sort of see it going, really? Right. Well, I think like the, the short story is Podemos has become a normal party, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> a normal party of the left. Uh-huh. Now, in uh-huh. fairness, even though their sort of anti-system discourse did garner them sympathies beyond the traditional left borders, uh-huh. uh, even in the center and a little bit on the center, right? Even at its height, the voting base of Podemos was um, from the center to the left, right? Uh-huh. Um, so it should be said that, like this, this popular strategy of mobilizing differently, it helps. Um, it can reach different kind of people who would not participate in politics, maybe. Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's, you know, it, it won't really make it to like convince someone who's a conservative voter. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's worth taking into account. Mm-hmm. So what happens in Spain is like the, you know, the, the political situation has changed. There's been since Podemos appeared, first a new centrist party appeared, then they disappeared and a sort of radical right party has taken its place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then Podemos has joined the government as a junior partner to the center-left. Uh-huh. So in the process of doing that, um, it has found that some of the things it criticized, like the Constitution of 1978, um, the EU, which are, you know, all of them certainly improvable. Nevertheless, they have uh, certain guarantees that can be uh, useful in, in like particularly dire circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. So this rescue package from the EU uh, is kind of important for Spain right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we depend on that to sort of know what priorities we want to set up in rebuilding our economy, um, it's a lifeline of support. It's a you know, similar thing with a vaccine buying scheme uh, from the EU. Like mm-hmm. that's, you know, Spain is integrated in all those networks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something you want to uh, get rid of. Among other things, because the EU reaction, um, or should I say the Eurozone reaction, so far um, has been a bit more, uh, leaves a bit more room for optimism than the one in 2008, 2010. Mm-hmm. Now we have to wait maybe a year or two to make a final verdict on that. So I don't want to come across as overly optimistic, mm-hmm. but um, I think it's a different juncture. I think to an extent, not a very large extent, but, um, but a significant one, the Germans and the sort of the, the more um, ordo liberal leaning countries in the EU have realized that they can't get out of the second crisis by demanding more austerity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that would lead to an implosion of the EU as it is, and that would not even benefit them. So mm-hmm. um, now, as for Podemos, like I wouldn't say I wouldn't um, call Podemos a Eurosceptic party. In that, you know, at least in the UK, that is a label that is reserved for parties that are actively anti-EU, like uh, UKIP, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, what I'd say is, you know, like a, maybe a Eurocritical um, yeah. party. Right? It's mm-hmm. critical of the existing mechanics mechanisms of the EU. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, especially at a time that appeared very accurately so as the EU basically pushed for a mistaken policy of fiscal austerity in the face of the 2008 crisis and recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there were good reasons to have that, that sort of critical posture. Now, if you actually look at a lot of the proposals that Podemos actually feels in the EU, 
um, they aim at more European integration as a solution to these problems, right? right. Uh, so you should have euro bonds, you should have a common euro treasury, you should have a common fiscal policy and get serious with uh, prosecuting tax havens within the EU because that breaks intra-European solidarity. So, you know, in many ways, um, and I, I'm pushing it maybe a bit too far, but they're not, some of the proposals are not different from the ones that uh, Emmanuel Macron has when it comes to the EU, which is more right. integrated okay. would be good mm -hmm. because we have a, you know, we have an incomplete currency union. And mm -hmm. so we either take a step backwards or we take, take a step forwards. And mm -hmm. I think Podemos does this, um, well, in part because it's a more uh, correct diagnostic of where Spain is, but also because Spain doesn't really have um, a high uh, Eurosceptic electorate, you know? No. Um, it, 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 even the, the sort of the radical right party, uh, which is more critical of the EU, uh, still like it doesn't um, advocate for a, like a Spexit or, um, you know, leaving the <laughs> EU or anything of the sort. Yeah. Uh, there's just not a demand for that kind of policy. So, mm. you know, you have to take that into account. Now, the thing about Podemos is like, okay, you want to reform the EU, but the only way you can do that is uh, in an intergovernmental level, right? And you need other European countries to collaborate with you on this front. I think it's really worth mentioning that in the response to the crisis um, this year, in um, when it came to... Um, guaranteeing that the EU did, you know, something a bit more proactive than last time mm -hmm. and that the ECB was also a bit more proactive too. I mean, the ECB is an independent institution, but uh, when it comes to ensuring that the response from governments was um, bolder than in the previous crisis, the governments of Spain, Portugal, and Italy were very important and they pushed mm -hmm. a common line. And all these governments are supported, uh, you know, externally or within the government by parties that arose as a reaction or grew as a reaction to the 2008 crisis mm -hmm. but are not of the radical right right i mean yeah. in Spain and portugal it's the the left and in italy it's the five star movements which is a bit of a ideological hodgepodge it's hard to pin down yeah, but yeah. not exactly a radical right party either uh-huh yeah and how i i mean the so yeah you said we need to wait a bit of time to before we can sort of judge the e and i mean the coronavirus isn't over yet God knows what's going to be going to be over, but um, you know we need to wait a bit of time. They've given out all this money, or they've they've proposed to give out all this money, um, but they haven't said you know certain things need to be paid back or anything yet. Um, so now with Podemos in the government with the PSOE, I mean they're like a junior partner in the coalition, aren't they? Mm -hmm. uh, and you said they've sort of become a normal party. Uh, in a recent uh, interview with Jacobin, Pablo Iglesias was talking about, you know, the Spanish, a Spanish Republic. Um, right. And, you know, there seems to be that maybe there's something in that. I'm not sure. I mean, there's been a plenty of scandals with the king or the ex-king, sorry, should I say, um, over the recent months. Uh, it doesn't seem to to get the same effect as as there probably was um, against, you know, austerity back in 2012, 15. Um, but can you see this as a sort of viable option for Podemos, you know, re republicanism? Is it going to, is it, is it, is it going to take off that, yeah, like, like Euroscepticism has in the UK, I suppose? Um, or, you know, is it, is it, is this going to bring the popular, is this going to inject populism back into Podemos or, or are they sort of done with populism for now, do you think? Right. I mean, it's it's an interesting question because the way Pablo Iglesias framed it in that interview is 
uh, look, um, a, a republic is what, you know, in, in this sort of populist theory that Podemos follows, you call an empty signifier. It means something uh -huh. that is not the flag of a country. It can mean many different things to many different people. And it's mm -hmm. up to you to invest it with meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't want, we're not saying republic as in the second republic before the civil war in the 1930s, which uh -huh. is the traditional left vindication. Mm -hmm. We're just saying a republic where people can read different things into that republic. So mm -hmm. maybe it means less corruption of the sort that the, yeah, the ex-king was, um, you know, recurrently involved in. And we have like new grotesque scandals coming up almost yeah. on a monthly basis. Um, <laughs> So that could mean one thing, but it could also mean, um, you know, that the country becomes more um, federalized, right? That mm -hmm. it becomes a, a nation of nations, as it's usually called. So it's also a way out for the territorial crisis of Spain. Mm -hmm. Or it could also mean that this republic enshrines the values of um, feminism and, um, you know, environmentalism, which are, you know, like growing, uh, younger people are interested in them and so on. So mm -hmm. it could mean different things. That's what he... So he, he frames it in those terms. Now, mm -hmm. I think it's a smart way of framing it, but ultimately the fact remains that it's a traditional uh, vindication of the of the old left, so to speak, that Podemos would have dismissed in 2014 as saying, look, even yeah. though all show this, that there's a plurality, not a majority, but a plurality of people for the Republic, it's, you know, like, it's not a good cleavage to work on because it's basically like, you know, Ultimately, it's mostly people who are left and progressive on one side, people who are right and conservative on another, but it's an identity issue. And, you know, maybe there are a lot of working class people who, who you know, are conservative or who are like identify, um, they're not particularly interested in the Republic and you're not going to reach them by, by investing on this, right? Mm -hmm. By making it your um, defining message. Now, why do they want to make it their defining message? Because it allows them to draw contrast with PSOE. Mm -hmm. uh, they are a very junior partner to PSOE. And so this allows them to sort of draw contrast and polarize because PSOE, nominally a Republican party, is in practice pro-monarchy and probably the most important pro-monarchy um, party in Spain in that like it invests the monarchy with an aura of... Um, you know, cross-party, cross-ideological appeal, right? You can mm -hmm. be progressive and also be for the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, that would be very hard because it's mostly people on the right who, who support it. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it's about polarizing on that issue. And um, I think it makes sense given the juncture that Podemos finds itself in, but it's it's a far cry from the 2014 strategies. It's, it's less ambitious. And mm -hmm. although it can mobilize younger Spaniards, and I think, it's, you know, um, not a mistaken strategy in this regard, I, I think... Um, it, it really highlights the extent to which uh, Podemos has lost much of its initial impulse and just focuses on more or less traditional wedge issues of the left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I suppose like the, to the, as I, well, the populism has been taken sort of out of Podemos at the moment, but it's been put into Vox. I mean, they are very much the populists on the right, right wing side in Spain. Um, they, you know, they, they managed to, govern they 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 won well they won andalusia effectively didn't they i mean that was quite shocking for a lot of spaniards i think andalusia has always been managed by sort of mm. center left for soe um how does how's vox's how, what is vox's like beginnings been like compared to demos and where can you see them going now with the defeat of donald trump well i mean the the vox case is interesting because um 
I guess by the definition I gave before of constructing a politic of an us versus them uh-huh. and, you know, like embodying and talking about the people, Vox uh-huh. would be a populist party. Now, when you look at it closely, it turns out that it's mostly like a spinoff from the traditional center-right party. So all the people who were the, the popular party, as it's called, Pepe, used to have people all the way from like center, you know, like Christian Democrats to mm-hmm. people who are pretty much hard right, you know, or uh-huh. um, even nostalgic of the Franco dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, those people are usually like, they're not the majority of the party, but now they basically split out and they, are, they form Vox. Mm-hmm. Um, all the leaders of Vox come from working with the popular party. So this is why, like in many ways, it's natural that they form alliances. And in Andalusia, I should point out, like they 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 took power um, because they added a majority, right, with the yeah. centre-right Tiranos uh, mm-hmm. and with the with the conservative Pepe, not because the uh-huh. box itself overtook Peso, of course. Yeah. But um, so it's it's natural for Pepe to an extent to form alliances with them because, like you know, these are all people who come from Pepe. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, with PSOE and Podemos, it, you don't even have that. The people who um, came from Podemos never worked in the center-left, the traditional center-left. Uh-huh. Um, now, when you look at it demographically, there's a lot of anxiety, similar to the United States, that Vox is going to tap into this um, white working class vote, right? Uh-huh. Um, as with Trump back in the day. Uh-huh. Now, similarly to Trump, you have to look at the actual electoral data carefully. Because mm-hmm. what you find when you look at it is that Interestingly enough, in Spain, all the electoral movement between parties, now that we have a multi-party democracy, is, so to say, within blocks. So mm-hmm. within the block of the left, you'll have people who go from voting PSOE to voting Podemos, and then mm-hmm. back to PSOE. That's part of what has happened. Yeah. In the block of the right, you have people who voted PP, who have now voted the box. Right? Uh-huh. Um, so like, it's not as if the entirety of the Spanish working class votes for the far right now. In yeah, fact, if you yeah. look at uh, you know, voting by class patterns, it turns out that it's the traditional center-left, the PSOE, that still manages to get, perform best among all parties within right. the class. At least if you understand the working class as a function of your income, right? Uh-huh. Um, and that, like, the data is very clear on that. Now, what the data also shows is that within the right block, so within the people who traditionally vote for Partido Popular, uh, the other center-right party, Ciudadanos, or Vox, mm-hmm. Within, like, those are people who always vote for one of those three parties. And within that block, it is true that the Vox electorate has a, a strange partition of one, very wealthy voters who are very conservative. So think of like a really old, like conservative, right? Old school um, reactionary mm-hmm. and working class voters right. who I guess are appealed to the fact that the party has like a combative and angry record. Mm-hmm. So that's what is going on more or less. Uh-huh. Now, can Vox uh, actually like replicate what Podemos did? It has tried. It even like copied the the no confidence uh, vote that Podemos did to the yeah. previous government. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think like they have grown spectacularly thanks mostly to the territorial crisis in Catalonia. Uh huh. Yeah. Once that is out of the picture, they they sort of they're trying to work in a different you know narrative. You know they they. It became very aggressive during the pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, very much similar, like following the sort of Trump line of like mm-hmm. Chinese virus, um, you know, yeah. bordering like um, just like amazingly uh, just like raving conspiracy theories of the kind that like, you know, George Soros is going to, you know, partner up with Bill Gates and put microchips in your bloodstream through yeah. the COVID-19 
vaccine. I mean, doesn't get this blatant, but it's like somewhere along this line. Yeah, yeah. And I think in that context, like Trump losing is not good for them, obviously, because they made a very clear strategic choice of aligning with them. And now their main international reference is gone. So that's a blow uh-huh. to their to their credibility and to their strategy. But I don't think it will make them disappear because, you know, Trump, for one thing, has lost, but he's improved his 2016 performance. So that's yeah. something to take into account. Mm-hmm. He's, uh, you know, down but not out. He might run again. Who knows? The, the Democrats have won, but they're in a very weak position. Uh-huh. And then, like, really, like, Vox has grown, um, you know, has benefited from the climate that Trump generates internationally. But really, like, its growth is autochthonous. It responds to, as I was mentioning before, the, the territorial crisis in Catalonia, uh-huh. um, which is a bit, you know, for the Spanish left, I guess, it's sort of a bit like they're the version of Brexit, right? It's an yeah. issue that they need to address and they don't know because it splits their electoral coalition. Uh-huh. And so they dither and uh, in dithering, they also don't look convincing and they lose votes on account of this. Yeah. So as long as the, the crisis in Catalonia gains salience, mm-hmm. much like in the UK with Brexit, the left loses ground to the right. And in the, to the extent that you're talking about the economy, uh, economic redistribution, raising the minimum wage, social protection, it's the left that benefits um, yeah. because the right is not so strong that not as convincing, I guess. And so, yeah, I mean, taking those two things into account, the territorial question, um, Pedro Sanchez seems to be um, governing in, in quite a federal manner, you know, through, the, through this crisis, you know, putting more emphasis on community, uh, that is. Um, so, you know, that's quite an, uh, an interesting area. Like, he's, he, he goes it towards it like a federal state. Do you think a, a federal state more like the U.S. is the answer to Spain's territorial uh, issue? Um, yeah, it's, it's a complex question. I would say, you know, like, Pedro Sánchez is a fascinating character who has, it seems to me at least, no ideological commitments whatsoever. So this <laughs> well, is like an extreme sense of pragmatism and also... Yeah. Um, an extreme confidence in himself, which then materializes into very lucky outcomes. Mm-hmm. So he's a fascinating figure to follow. But I don't think he's like particularly invested in federalism. I think they're arranging the, the response to the second wave of COVID in this way. The first one, they did the state of emergency and try to centralize the, the response. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now I think they're trying to do that, the more federal style response, because they know that if, if it's up on them, they'll pick up more flack um, than if it, the burden is shared with the regional governments. Uh-huh. Now, as for Spain becoming a federal country, it's, you know, the question is, for one thing, um, Spain already has a relatively decentralized state. So uh-huh. depending on how you want to understand it, you can, it's more of a federal than a, than a centralized country. There is regional mm-hmm. government, uh, it has a lot of prerogatives. I do think that a, you know, fully federal, but that's, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of the policies itself, but like a more like a fully fledged federal system would probably be the answer Mm. um, for Spain's territorial crisis. Now, that doesn't mean that's not going to convince a lot of the people who in Catalonia who want independence. Right. Um, Even if you decentralize more and the more like identity based part of the independence movement will still claim that, you know, Spain is inherently authoritarian and it's a country you must break away with because Mm -hmm. all things Spanish are corrupt. And this is a discourse that um, that I think is very resilient to to evidence that would disprove it or that at least suggest that like things in Catalonia are not that different. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's um uh, for the right wing it would come across as a, an, an acceptable concession to um you know the, to the peripheral nationalists and so 
Um, so it'd be, still be fraught. I don't think mm-hmm. Spain's territorial issues have any sort of, there's no silver bullet, right? Mm. Um, yes, I think a more federal system would work. Federalism means that like you have to respect, you have like, a very clear respect for regional autonomy and there's certain things you cannot interfere with. Mm-hmm. It also means that there's coordination between federal governments mm-hmm. and the national one, right? Mm-hmm. Not this sort of like disloyalty where like uh, the regional government in Catalonia is trying to boycott whatever you do, or for that matter, the one in Madrid, which yeah. uh, also <laughs> acts with um, um, incredible disloyalty to the to the national government when it um, thinks it can do or arrange things in different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in like the, the state of Madrid, not the city, but the region um, has pretty much succeeded in becoming a sort of uh, tax haven within Spain so that it absorbs a lot of investment, which is incredibly detrimental to the, all the regions that are around it, right? Right. Because it sucks up all the investment and talent. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the consequence of having like a lot of prerogatives. So it's not a question of that having more, you know, autonomy regionally is necessarily a good thing, you know, mm-hmm. and, and if you don't like to use it in the case of Catalonia to showcase that you can use the case of Madrid. Mm. Um, so this just goes all to say that I, I don't think there is a, a clear solution. I think a more federal system would work, but I think mm-hmm. it, you know it needs to be. Um, it's not just a question about devolving uh, power regionally, but also of clarifying who holds it and having like a good, um, like you know, well-meaning interlocution between the the national and federal governments. Yeah, like a complete change of political climate, really. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's not going to happen overnight, you know. No, so, no. That's why I say I don't think there's a a, a silver bullet to the question. Yeah, and and just to uh, finish up, uh, you know, COVID's quite a big um, has has sort of shown a lot of inequalities in society and things, but actually populism sort of seems to be dying down. I mean, the defeat of Donald Trump being the obvious one, but you know, um, uh, in the UK. Jeremy Corbyn has been kicked out of the Labour Party. The Pessoa are doing better in the polls than than Podemos. Um, and Podemos have sort of lost any sort of populist vibe they had. And 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 Vox have sort of struggling as well since this sort of no confidence motion. I mean, it's a it's a very short term thing, but it was only a few weeks ago. But you know, they sort of seem to have lost some edge. And right. as you said, they sort of thrive off Catalonia. So what can you see as being the future for populism? in in both countries so i think you know the the reason um i I mean to be honest i speak more i can speak more about left populism because the radical right i'm I'm not an expert on Uh Uh, i don't know what is it that i don't you know i can i can hypothesize what drives them but like you know i haven't studied this closely Mm -hmm. i would say you know they did extraordinarily well at the beginning uh, mm-hmm. Because the conditions were there for them to to be successful, and also because they did a, a few things that were very smart in terms of communication and the way they organized and the outreach, so that generated huge expectations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders is going to win the 2020 primaries. Uh, Podemos in 2016 was going to overtake PSOE and eventually govern Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, like these these objectives were not met, and in fact, they they you know, parties faced reversals. So that even though they're in a stronger position now than um, let's say six years ago, it seems like uh, you know, in comparison, you look back and it seems like it feels like a defeat, uh-huh. right? Um, what I would say is like again to go back, you need to combine very um, a, a set of skills, not just you know the communication, organization. Also, you need people with the policy expertise to actually govern, as we're seeing with with Polemos case, it's entering through the government. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard to juggle all these things. So it's, a, mm-hmm. it's been a very steep learning curve. 
Yeah. Now, because the conditions that created these movements are still there, I think, you know, they will, or maybe not the exact movements, but like we'll have more uh, phenomena of this kind. So I don't think okay. they'll just disappear. Um, and as for the, you know, COVID and, and, and populism is, is an interesting case because, you know, when, when the crisis first came, um, there's a very common discourse that was like, look, uh, you know, this crisis is serious business, right? You need the experts to handle it. And it's all fun games to have like the populace, like, uh, you know, say stupid shit for like a few years. But now, you know, uh, it's time for the adults in the room to handle things and populism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, what we're, what we're seeing is that, you know, again, like many things that should work in theory, but in practice, what you have is like people are being confined and, you know, they are upset at their government and, uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories are on the rise because mm -hmm. this, like, you know, lets uh, people get disaffected. And even though people like Donald Trump lose elections, others like, you know, the radical right in Poland or Viktor Orban in Hungary, who actually are competent authoritarians and how you knew how to operate with the levers of state power, they're consolidating their position. Right. Um, so I don't think it's a question of like populist, non populist. It's a question of like uh, basically like administrative competence mm -hmm. right like are you uh, a skillful authoritarian problem with trump is like the the progressives in u.s uh, well a lot of, you know the mainstream democratic party has spent four years saying he is a fascist and an incredibly ruthless authoritarian and it turns out he's not he's a lousy authoritarian you know? <laughs> he has thousands of appointments in in key departments they've never made if you're actually a good authoritarian you'd want to appoint your people to those positions yeah and the status as quickly as possible he's too lazy to do that because he spends most of his time on you know like watching fox news and friends <laughs> so he's he's not like a skilled fascist authoritarian and no. you know but the ones who, who are uh, good at that game they've done really well with the virus and you know mm -hmm. This has just started. So imagine, you know, the, the crisis that started in 2008, you only started seeing protest movements three years later in, in 2011 in the streets. And then they took, you know, the step to go into politics in some uh -huh. places. So wait a couple more years and let's see what this brings about. But I don't think it will be an end of populism and then, um, you know, return of the centrist dad, to uh -huh. power, you know, business as usual and technocratic competence. Uh -huh. I think that's over. I think that that's over. And, you know, I don't think it's coming back. You can, you can, you know, give it a second life with the Biden administration, for example. But I think uh -huh. we're already realizing how weak that is because it doesn't really mobilize anyone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, even though, like, I think we have to be sober and realize that these left populist parties, they fell short of their attending their goals. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's not a question of that. Oh, that, that means their rivals are doing great. No, nobody's doing great right now. No. So we'll have to see how things reconfigure in within the next two years. Uh-huh. And, and is there, you know, a chance for another populist movement in Spain, do you think, on the left in, in response to COVID? Uh, I mean, or? I'm awful at doing predictions, you know. So <laughs> if I say something, if you take it with a, a few grains of salt, I mean, yeah, I think for, for sure. The question, the interesting question is like, you know, if there were a, a popular, I don't think it's going to happen in the next month or even year, right? But who knows? If there were sort of like progressive uprising, like the big 2011 protest movements that really fueled or inspired the generation that didn't fought Podemos. Yeah. Would the really existing, like Podemos as, as it is right now, be able to channel that? Uh-huh. I think there would be more of, their position would resemble that of the left party in, in the traditional left party, Izquierda Unida, back in 2011. Mm -hmm. When, as I mentioned, in this in the face of mobilizations that should have benefited them, they could only garner 8% of the vote. Yeah. 
Podemos do better, but it still wouldn't be able to to say, okay, we're going to transform Spanish politics thanks to this. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the electoral space that is Podemos, maybe with a different leadership, maybe with a different approach, can still be used uh, for, for progressive purposes. And, and from there, you can build onwards. And there are a lot of, like, um, you know, well-meaning and very competent people uh, inside there. Um, so, so it's not something to be dismissed. But I don't think it will be just a question of, oh, you know, there's been a protest and now Podemos is polling at 30%. That, that's not going to happen. No. It's not going to be Podemos as it is right now that will be the vehicle to channel that. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing I would I would dare to, um, you know, foresee. But other than that, who knows? Cool. Thanks very much, Jorge. So, and very yeah. insightful chat. Brilliant. Thanks very Thank much. You. All right. Well, keep in touch. That was Jorge Tomamas on populism. Thanks again, Jorge, for coming on Sol Mesa. Uh, his book is available at lwbooks.co.uk and it's called For the People, Left Populism in Spain and the US. Um, I'd highly recommend getting a copy. Sorbonne Mesa has had a bit of a break and the schedule for this podcast uh, will be slowing down a bit because it's getting to the end of term um, and Christmas is coming up. But before Christmas, we have some great shows lined up for you. Uh, where we'll be reviewing the Spanish budget. I think it's like the first budget in about four or five years. Uh, I'm going to have some old guests on to discuss that. If you know anyone that wants to uh, contribute towards this podcast, maybe they're doing a PhD or a master's on a certain area of Spanish history or, um, or on contemporary Spain in the modern day, then please get in contact um, via the email address at the.sorblamesa.podcast at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get all the latest episodes, uh, which will continue to come to you on Mondays, uh, just not every Monday, because uh, doing a podcast is a lot of work. Don't forget, you can always listen to old episodes of the Sorblamesa podcast on the on, and we're on all platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google, and several others. Uh, if you want to leave us a rating or review, then that would be great, um, and it would really make, make my week. And on that note, I hope you have a great week, um, and come back and listen to more Sorblemesa. Thanks for listening.